From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, August 18th. My name is Laura from Westland, Oregon. Hi, my name is Julie. I'm from New Zealand. Are kids under 12 truly safe? or does What are valid things to consider? What sort of well? considerations were made, if any, about the risks of leaving children unvaccinated? For the past couple of weeks, we have been hearing from so many listeners who are parents wondering how they can safely send their kid back to school. Is the Delta variant just more transmissible among children? Can anyone help? Today, we are answering those questions. But before we get there... The time to lay out a plan for COVID-19 boosters is now. There is some news today about what we vaccinated people will need to do going forward. That is why today we are announcing our plan to stay ahead of this virus by being prepared to offer COVID-19 booster shots to fully vaccinated adults 18 years and older. The Biden administration is now recommending that adults get a coronavirus booster shot. Those shots will start being offered on September 20th, assuming that they're approved by the FDA. Americans who got Pfizer or Moderna should plan to get a third dose eight months after their second dose. For Americans who got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, officials expect that there will be a booster shot for them, too. But that data is still being reviewed. Recent data makes clear that protection against mild and moderate disease has decreased over time. This is likely due to both waning immunity and the strength of the widespread Delta variant. Even though this new data affirms that vaccine protection remains high against the worst outcomes of COVID, we are concerned that this pattern of decline we are seeing will continue in the months ahead. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy and Dr. Anthony Fauci both emphasized vaccines are effective. But the idea here is to get ahead of the virus. You don't want to find yourself behind playing catch up. Better stay ahead of it than chasing after it. We've all been seeing these horrible stories about people who didn't stay ahead of it. People who are landing in the ICU after refusing to get vaccinated, saying with their last breaths that they wish that they'd chosen to get the vaccine. But what about the kids who are getting sick, who never had that option in the first place? Around the country, hospitals are reporting that more kids are getting seriously sick with COVID. It's very clear. I think everybody knows that Delta is different. Delta is deadly, and we're seeing stuff we haven't seen before. Instead of seeing women bury their parents, we're seeing women bury their children. There still isn't a vaccine approved for children under 12. And that means that kids are going back to school without that protection. And in some cases, while their teachers and parents and elected officials are all arguing over whether they should even be wearing masks, there are a lot of questions from parents right now about how to do the right thing and keep kids safe even when the world is actively working against you. Today on the show, we're going to answer some of those questions with two people who have been thinking a lot about these issues. And I'm recording. Hannah Natanson, education reporter at The Post. So am I and Dr. Lena Wen, an emergency physician and contributing columnist. So 
You are both here because we have received so many questions from listeners, many of them who have children, who are trying to figure out how to navigate this moment of the Delta variant and going back to school and having all these new questions about how COVID is affecting kids and how we're supposed to be keeping children safe. So to start things off, Dr. Wen, this week you launched a newsletter for The Post. It's called The Checkup with Dr. Wen. And you're talking to people as a physician, but I think the advice that you're giving is also informed by your experiences as a parent. And I'm wondering for you, like, what is going through your mind right now? And what is keeping you up at night thinking about the Delta surge as a mom? Well, there are a few things that are going through my mind. One is about how, as a society, we have failed our children over and over again during this pandemic. You mentioned that I'm a mom. I have two little kids. I have a son who turns four in a couple of weeks and a daughter who is 16 months old, who was born during the pandemic, and this is all that she's known. But I think a lot about how this is now one of the most dangerous times for our young children who are too young to be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Because while we have increasing levels of infections, we also have a lot of people who have let down their guard, who may not be recognizing the dangers of the pandemic. And we are now starting the school year with, in many places, fewer precautions than we did last year. And so all that on the policy and individual level concerned me very much. Dr. Wen, what I'm hearing from you, it sounds like, is in some ways a sense of frustration at the situation that we're in that people potentially should have anticipated. Hannah, I'm wondering if you are hearing that same frustration from the parents and the teachers and school officials that you've been talking to. I'm hearing all kinds of frustrations, some similar to what Dr. Wen shared, but some on the opposite side of things, too, where parents are upset by schools starting to take more precautions again. So there's just a huge battle raging across the country over you know, how schools are reopening. Everyone's in agreement that schools should reopen by this point, and most places are, but the, the debates are now over, are we going to require masks and are we going to require vaccines for teachers? And it's sort of actually mired the whole reopening in what has become essentially a political firefight. Well, it seems like a lot of the reason why this is becoming a political firefight is because not everyone understands the science around the realities and risks for children going back to school. And that's what I want to get into a little bit more today in terms of thinking about how to keep children safe. So we asked our listeners for questions. We received a bunch of them. But one big overarching question that I want to ask first, and this is a question that I just have, is how is the Delta variant affecting kids differently than regular COVID did? I mean, are the cases in children more serious? Are children more likely to catch the Delta variant? Are the symptoms different? Dr. Wen, maybe you can walk me through that. We know that the Delta variant is much more contagious than any of the previous strains of coronavirus. And when something is more contagious, it means that the activities that previously we were able to get away with are now much higher risk. So another way of thinking about this is there was a study done that found that individuals who are infected with the Delta variant carry about a thousand times the virus than people infected with the original variants. And so if you have that much more virus, you're able to transmit it to more people. 
quicker, and potentially that makes you more ill as well. Now, we do know that the number of infections in children has been rising. And unfortunately, if you have more children becoming sick, more children are going to be hospitalized, and very tragically, some of those children will die. Hmm. Wow. So I want to go into our first listener question from Julie in New Zealand. I've been thinking about how little information it feels like we've been getting about the vaccine for kids and sort of wondering about what what the process is for developing and testing the vaccine for children and why there's been such a delay compared to adults and what sort of considerations were made, if any, about the risks of leaving children unvaccinated for so much longer than adults. So what are we waiting for to get young children vaccinated and when are we going to be waiting until? Look, I do think that there is a reason as to why things are taking longer in children than for adults. And the reason is that children are not just little adults. You can't use the same dose, for example, for a two-year-old as you would for an 18-year-old. The vaccines thus far that are approved for 12-year-olds and above, that's the same dose as the adult dose. And so part of it is that there are lower doses being studied in children, and then children are also in different stages of development. So you have to take into account other um, developmental factors as well. And so the studies that are done are what's called age de-escalation studies. There are studies being done for 6 to 11-year-olds and the 3 to 5-year-olds and 6 months to 2 years and so forth. So there is a process that needs to be followed. And safety in this case is really critical because I think that if there were any perception of shortcuts being taken. It wouldn't just influence trust in this vaccine. It could also have downstream impacts on other childhood immunizations and trust in those as well. So I definitely understand the reason why we're we're taking this deliberate process. That said, I actually agree with Julia in this case that Right now, there seems to be some lack of transparency that's occurring. I would love to understand more from the FDA about exactly what they are asking from Pfizer, in this case, the first one that would be able to have data available. What is the process thus far? Because initially, the projections for Pfizer were that we would have the 6 to 11-year-olds. We would ideally have a vaccine for this group by September, October. Okay, interesting. So right now, we do not have a current expectation of when the first set of vaccines for people under 12 are actually going to be approved. So the next question comes from Sarah Miller in Iowa. As an Iowan, I'm horrified to be looking down the barrel at sending my children to school in an environment where it is illegal for our local school boards to mandate masks. State legislation passed in the middle of the night last May seemed ridiculous at the time, but now with our vaccination rates stagnant and kids under 12 ineligible, I want to know if there is any action the federal government can take to mandate masks in public schools, similar to the mandate in transportation. So, Hannah, I'm curious, does the federal government have any power here to step in and mandate masks in public schools? Uh, No, not really. Decisions about masking are made at the locality level by county school boards. State governments 
are trying and have been trying to sort of step in and organize that. And their tools are really to pass laws that might do things like strip funding from schools that impose mask mandates. But the federal government, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, doesn't have the authority to require masks in schools. They can recommend it, and they have, but there's nothing that they or the Biden administration can really do. And Biden has, although he can issue requirements about masks for federal workers, and he has, he has no intention and has said he doesn't plan to do a national mandate, which would be open to legal challenges and possibly unconstitutional. So no. You know, last week we did a story about the debate over the school mask mandates in Florida and the fact that Governor Ron DeSantis has basically banned mask mandates, though some school officials are opposing him in that. But one thing that I remember hearing him say was this idea that, well, if we look at the data from the last year and a half, over the course of the pandemic between schools where mask mandates were not in place and schools where mask mandates were in place, that there's not an actual difference in the data of the spread of COVID among children and that the masks aren't really even that effective in schools or don't make that much of a difference. Is that true? Actually, the data are pretty clear. There was a recent study published by researchers at Duke, as an example, looking into this, that actually found masks, in fact, even if that's the one intervention, the one difference between some schools and others that have mask mandates versus those that that don't, the ones with mask mandates were clearly superior when it came to reducing the spread of COVID-19. And very importantly, too, it's not just a matter of illness. It's also school closures. The more outbreaks there are, the more likely that it is that we're not going to be able to keep our schools open and then parents are going to be out of work. Although I will say, I don't think that parents should feel helpless here either. I think there are a lot of parents who are going to be in a situation, as the caller was, who are going into schools where masks are not mandated. But here's what they can do. One thing is recognize that having a high-quality mask also protects the wearer, as in, this is really not the time for cloth masks anymore. This is the Delta variant. We need at least a three-ply surgical mask. If your child can tolerate it, if they're older, an N95 or KN95, that will protect your child, even if others are not wearing a mask. And then also talk to other parents. Very likely, other parents feel the same way as you do. And if there are enough parents in a class who can all say, hey, we want our children to be wearing masks, then that also creates a norm and an environment that's safer for your child too. I also think that there are other things that parents can be doing as well, including monitoring for social activities. And what we saw last year, for example, was many of the outbreaks were actually occurring not in the classroom, but in extracurricular activities. And not even in the formal extracurricular activity, as in maybe soccer practice is fine, but then it was the locker room or the pizza party that was actually the source of spread. And so it would just be a shame to have all these protocols in school, only to have after-school activities be the problem. I really, for unvaccinated children, would not want them to be getting together indoors. No sleepovers, no dinners, no birthday parties indoors, uh, unless you're forming a pod, which is something else that, that parents can think about as an additional way to increase carpooling and social activities while also reducing risk, too. After the break, we talk about recess and lunchtime, when a lot of kids take their masks off. We'll be right back with more answers. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. 
The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Okay, so we had a listener named Laura who wrote in about recess and lunchtime, and they're worried that their kid is going to be unmasked and potentially exposed during those times, when they're not in the classroom, but when they're eating, when they're in a big cafeteria. So, Lena, can you tell us about the risks of lunchtime and recess? Well, outdoors, the risk is very low. And I actually think that it's important for us to let children know when they don't need to be wearing a mask so that they could really focus on when they really need to. And so I would say, given that the risk of outdoor transmission is much, much, much lower, I think it's fine to say that kids can take off their masks outdoors during recess, during um, sports activities, and so forth. And that also gives them something to look forward to. And then they can really focus on wearing masks in indoor settings. I hope that meals will be done outdoors as much as possible, because otherwise this is a high-risk time. It is very high-risk to be in a cafeteria where lots of kids are walking around, people are, what, do not have their masks, they may be in close proximity with one another. I think as much as possible, again, see if your child is able to have an accommodation where maybe they can eat outdoors and not in the cafeteria. And I'm curious how you're seeing school officials responding to some of these concerns around lunch and recess from parents and if they are making some changes in terms of having lunch outside rather than inside or putting in other measures to try to reduce the risk in those moments. So you've got a total patchwork of what schools are doing. There's no consistency across the nation. In some places, you've got schools that are making these kinds of modifications. So, for example, in Alexandria City Public Schools, which is a Northern Virginia school district, there's been a tradition where high schoolers have often eaten outside in particular places. So they're continuing that and trying to encourage that as much as possible. But they also know that just given the school buildings they have, it's just not possible to have lunch outside everywhere. So what they're doing instead is having seating charts, having kids eat in pods. In another school system in Hammond, Indiana, they're doing breakfast served in the classroom so kids sort of grab it and then go back and eat in their confined space and they're even going so far as like eliminating messy items like <laughs> syrup I feel like there are probably multiple benefits to that, but... <laughs> That's true. Uh, it might be fewer cavities as well, but they're focusing on things like individually wrapped items. They even bought like heat sealing machines to make that more feasible. And then they're having all the lunch tables face the same way. But at the same time, there are other places that are doing the opposite. So in one school system in North Dakota, they just voted to make masks optional and they voted to walk back a whole bunch of lunchtime restrictions that they'd had about having kids eat lunch in cohorts. And so they're just going back to business as normal. So it really depends where you are. And we have one more question from Christina Potter in Northern Virginia. Maybe we can listen to that. I have a two-year-old son. And my question regarding COVID is in respect to him and vaccinations in children. Um, I got my vaccine um, and I wasn't too concerned about effects of that. But what are valid things to consider when getting a child so young vaccinated? Well, I certainly hear you in that concern. I think for a lot of people, we are even more careful when it comes to our children than we are with ourselves. And it is a very reasonable issue to be raising. 
and you have a two-year-old, I, I have two little kids around your kid's age as well, it's going to take a while before vaccines are approved for children in our age group. I mean, what I would look at, are there side effects beyond the side effects that we know to expect already with the vaccines? As in, I wouldn't be so concerned if they just get some muscle aches and fatigue and fever, and then it goes away. But the upside is that it prevents them from having severe outcomes from COVID. I would definitely be happy to take that. We want to make sure that the doses that are tested also give that same really high level of protection as it does in adults. And in the meantime, as we're waiting for the vaccine to be approved for kids who are in that youngest age range, what is your advice for parents who are thinking about sending their kids to daycare or especially when you have kids who are too young to reliably be able to keep their mask on and to be able to follow instructions like that? How do you mitigate some of those risks for that youngest age group? Well, what I do, including for my 16-month-old who cannot wear a mask at the moment, she just takes it right off and doesn't really help even when her older brother tries to model <laughs> the mask-wearing behavior. What we do, most importantly, is we spend as much time outdoors as possible. We will not see people, including relatives or friends who are unvaccinated, indoors. We will only see them outdoors. And we'll have playdates outdoors, we'll do all kinds of activities outdoors, but I think that's the single most most important thing that we can be doing. Something else that I think is important to keep in mind is that the more that that child is surrounded by people who are vaccinated, the more that that protects that child as well. And so all those around the child who are 12 and older should be vaccinated. Um, and those who spend a lot of time with that child ideally should be reducing risk in their lives as well. So my, my husband and I, as an example, whenever we are in crowded indoor spaces, we will definitely be wearing masks ourselves because we do not want to be bringing back the virus to potentially infect our unvaccinated kids. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm wondering, it feels like there's an overarching question here, both with regards to daycare, but also all schools that I think a lot of parents are considering, which is, what are the circumstances under which it is not safe to send my kid back to school? Like, if I hear about a situation that's happening at the school, is that risky enough that I should just be keeping my kid at home? And I'm wondering if there's a bright line for you of what is the thing that a parent should not abide? That's such a great question. And I actually would be really curious to hear Hannah's answer based on her reporting, because as I was listening to what you were saying, Hannah, about the patchwork that's going on around the country, I mean, parents are going to encounter very different circumstances depending on the rules in their school. I'm glad you mentioned my newsletter in the beginning because one of the reasons for doing this new newsletter is that there's so much uncertainty and there aren't bright lines. As in, I think different people are going to look at the same set of data and circumstances and make very different decisions because of their risk tolerance, because of the medical risk factors in their household, and because of their own values. I mean, there might be some parents for whom school is a form of childcare that they cannot do without. Or maybe their child really needs to be in school for their own emotional well-being. And even if there were many cases, even in their class, Parents might still choose to have their kid in class. Other parents might make a different decision based on those data points. I'm concerned from what I have seen, including what I understand in Texas, that the head of the Texas schools have said that contact tracing is no longer required and that schools do not have to report when there are positive cases. I worry that one of the mechanisms that the schools will be using 
to try to keep open is to not be as vigilant about reporting cases. And I think that is a problem because that's taken away the ability of parents to be making an informed choice. But Hannah, I'm really curious about what you have seen throughout the country. Yeah, I think it's sort of exactly like what you said. Everybody has a different line. And so what you are seeing is you are seeing some parents pulling their kids from school either because they are upset that there is a mask mandate or elsewhere that they're upset that there isn't one. It's a kind of a big mess everywhere, as has been the case throughout the pandemic in education. And I mean, you even see insofar as in Iowa City, parents actually asked the school district to educate masked and unmasked kids separately. In Austin, Texas, you've got the school district trying to expand its virtual offerings because in Texas, there's an executive order banning mask mandates. So the school district knows that some parents are just not going to send their kids back if there isn't a mask mandate. So they're expanding the virtual option, which goes against the advice of basically everyone in education at this point, by the way, who believe that in-person learning is absolutely crucial to help kids catch up. I feel like I've had a lot of conversation with friends and family about the psychological toll that the pandemic is taking on us and this constant vigilance about protecting our own health and the health of the people around us. And I wonder, like, how you talk to kids about that and about the anxiety around going back to school, both instilling a a real sense of wariness and caution and making it clear that there are consequences for being indoors without a mask or taking risks, but also not making kids feel terrified all the time. I think it's really hard. And of course, this depends on the child. It depends on their age. I will say for my son, who's almost four and heading back to preschool, this is what he knows. I mean, in a way, that's a pretty sad reflection of where we are in this pandemic as well. But he was in school briefly before the pandemic. And then all he's known is pandemic life and going to indoor settings with a mask on. And so for him, it's actually not that big of an adjustment because that's what he understands. But in talking to older kids, you do see this wide range. I mean, there are some older children who are really scared of the virus. There are others who are much more blasé. I guess what I find to be helpful is to open the door and have these honest conversations with your child about what they're expecting, how are they responding to the way that schools are now looking. I think also practicing is a good idea as well, as in rehearsing for what if they encountered this type of situation, as in what if they go into a room, masks are supposed to be required, but nobody's wearing a mask, or what if they're invited to a party that's supposed to be outdoors, but now everybody's indoors. So I think having that constant conversation and then making it about empowerment, as in not just talking about all the things we can't do during the pandemic, but about all the things that we are now able to do and that we are able to choose to do to protect ourselves. I think that could be helpful too. Just to add to that, I don't have kids myself, but I spend a lot of time with young kids reporting at schools. And I've just noticed sort of exactly what Dr. Wen was saying. I was at a recess in Northern Virginia last semester where they were allowing kids to remove their masks during recess for the first time. And the amazing thing to me was that a decent portion of the kids wanted to keep them on and sort of watching them and talking to them. It became clear that someone has positively emphasized the mask to them as 
something we can do to not only keep ourselves safe, but to keep others safe. And so for some of them, it had almost become like a security blanket. So to me, it's always interesting when I hear politicians or parents arguing that young kids can't handle masks and they hate masks. That may be true for some of them, but for some kids, they really like the idea that this mask I put on every day is my way of fighting it and making the world safer. Hannah Natanson is an education reporter for The Post. Dr. Lena Wen is a physician and contributing columnist to The Post. Her new newsletter launches this week. It's called The Checkup with Dr. Wen. Every Thursday, she will offer guidance on the latest public health recommendations, and she'll answer questions like the ones you heard today. To subscribe, go to wapo.st slash checkup, or find a link in our show notes and at postreports.com. Today's show was mixed by Lena Muhammad and produced by Sabi Robinson. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.